Now, all of you know, all of you know I've written one book, right? All of you know this? Okay, everybody knows this. And uh, some of you know I'm working on a second one, and uh, I'm having a little trouble with it. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be much more head than heart. The first one was heart. It just came out of my heart. It just poured out uh, really effortlessly. Um, and uh, But the second one, it's going to be more like I'm going to have to build it more than simply write it. I've struggled and struggled and struggled with the title. To, to my way of thinking, um, you really need the title before you write the first word because you have to boil everything down that you want to say. The principal message that you're trying to say, you have to boil it down to three to four words, two, three, four, five words. And it was very easy on the first book. God gave me the title ten years ago. It just took me that long to get it written. Um, the book that I believe God is laying on my heart to write, it's, uh, it will touch on the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, and will give both the long-standing and emerging scientific arguments against naturalism or against materialism, also called the macro-Darwinian hypothesis, this, this microbes-to-man thing. You've all heard it. You've all been exposed to it. Most of you have been taught this, that we came from... Microbes. I'm going to rebut that, not from simply a theological perspective, but um, from a scientific one. If you, if you are current in your reading, you understand that emerging science is, is showing that there's huge problems with this Darwinian hypothesis. I mean huge problems. There are huge scientific problems with it. And it's one of the things I want to try to, to write to the Christian. Obviously, I'm writing from a biblical perspective. And I'm writing to the Christian. Because I want the Christian to be able to be in the world and say, hey, you know, have you thought about this? Have you read this? Have you heard what this scientist said? I have, like, I don't know, so many killer quotes from PhDs on this subject. And I want to make this public uh, in, a, in a condensed form, I, I want Christians to know this. I don't want you to be intimidated in the world. When someone starts talking about this uh, uh, horizontal, macro-Darwinian stuff, I, I, want, I, want us to be able to, I want us to be able to stand, not only on biblical and theological grounds, but also to be knowledgeable about what science is discovering and what science is saying. Let me just say this. Some of you already know that this macro-Darwinian theory, it's a philosophical worldview dressed up in a lab coat. I love what Ph.D. Stephen C. Meyer says. Science done right always points to God. It always points to God. And it's true. I've probably read 25 books on this subject. And I end up worshiping. <laughs> I end up worshiping as, as some molecular biologist describes to me what's going on in the single cell. It's miraculous. Yes, David is right. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, indeed, fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a new book out in this regard that I can't wait to read. I'm going to get it when I go to the States. It's called Undeniable. It was written by Douglas Axe. 
Um, the subtitle I love. He says, How Biology Confirms Our Intuition That Life Is Designed. Okay? I love that subtitle. How Biology Confirms Our Intuition That Life Is Designed. I can't wait to read it. You say, well, Jim, that's, that's really interesting or maybe not so interesting, but what's it got to do with Psalm 29? Well, this is where my mind went as I studied and prayed about Psalm 29. I think I came up maybe with the, the possible title for the book as I studied Psalm 29. Um, what is it about? You heard me read it. I hope you have your Bibles open or electronic device so you can see the words. The psalm is about the Lord. Nineteen times the Lord is mentioned. It's about God. It's about Yahweh. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the text, it means Yahweh. So it's about God. The psalm mentions 14 attributes of God. This awesome God that Karen did such a great job that we sang about. This amazing, incredible, breathtaking, um, eternal, infinite God. The psalm is built around the majestic power of God that David is watching in the created order. David is watching a thunderstorm pass through Lebanon. That's, that's what he's doing as he writes this psalm, right? So David is watching the greatness of God on display in the created order. Lastly, the psalm is about the glory of God. It's mentioned four times in 11 verses. The glory of God. David is reading off the thunderstorm what every human being is supposed to read off the thunderstorm uh, and every other natural and material event. That the God who created this is God and He's glorious. He's infinitely Glorious. This is what David is reading. So what is the title? What is the possible title for my, my book? I thought maybe glory despised, right? Glory despised or glory forsaken. David says, everything says glory. No, the secular scientist says, no, it's all chance. It it all came by, by chance and uh, mindless, unguided process. Everything, all the beauty and symmetry and, and uh, design and complexity that you see in the natural realm and even, even in your own body, it's just an accident. Well, this is not a so subtle backhanded slap at the glory of God. David is simply watching a thunderstorm and he's caught up, right? He's caught up in worship. This is what's supposed to happen when human beings simply observe the natural realm. We understand that there's a genius behind this. There's an almighty genius behind this. And that's what's happening. That is what is happening in Psalm 29. Naturalism, sometimes it's called, how many of you have heard the term scientism? Have you heard this? Scientism. It's just science made into a religion. So naturalism and scientism, is, it's, it's the newest world religion. And the scientists, modern scientists, are the new priesthood. It is the thrust of cultural and academic and media elites. This is the drumbeat you hear in modern academia. It's a drumbeat you hear in the media. 
it's all, it's all explainable. We don't need God. It can be explained by, it's all chemistry and physics, right? It's all chemistry and physics. It's nothing but chemistry and physics. There are thousands of good philosophical arguments against that, but this is the assertion that's being made in the world today regarding Psalm 29. What is the created order about? It's about the glory of God, quite simply. It's about the glory of God. I'm going to give you four passages from the Bible. Uh, you say, Jim, this seems like a long introduction. That's okay. It's a very short psalm. There's not a lot for me to, to exposit from the psalm, but I'm going to lay some groundwork for you. I want to give you four passages that speak to the fact that the created order is all about you and me worshiping God. It's all about you and me seeing God and recognizing the glory of God and worshiping God. Ultimately, obviously, submitting to the authority of this God. As He's giving us, given us His Word, He's given us the natural revelation is out there, and He's given us the supernatural revelation uh, in His Word. So, four passages. The first one is Isaiah 6.3. You guys know this passage. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Isaiah 6.3. It was Isaiah's vision of God on His throne being worshipped by the seraphim. Who remembers what the seraphim were saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they said, remember, the whole earth is full of your glory. Do you see that it's blasphemy for any man, a man made of dust, I remind you, arrogant and blasphemous to say, well, we don't need a God. It's all physics and chemistry. It all just happened. Once there was nothing and now there's everything. I mean, first of all, that's irrational, right? It's illogical and irrational, just philosophically. But do you see how this is a it's, a, it's a shot at God. It, you, you, you can't see it any other way. The whole earth is full of the glory of God, Isaiah says. David says, everything says glory. And as I like to say, from the microscopic creature under the rock in the deepest part of the ocean to the asteroid on the farthest side of the universe, it's all about the glory of the Creator. Who's the Creator? Colossians 1.16 It was all created by Him and for Him. Who's the Creator? Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. Everything's about Him. Every atom is about Him. Every molecule is about Jesus Christ. It's all for His glory, as Isaiah reminds us. The second passage I wanted to direct you to, you know this one, I'm sure, Psalm 19, 1 and 2, written by David. David says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God means for every human being to be reading His glory off the creation. He means for that to be happening. The third passage, Psalm 139.14. I've already referenced it. 
Again, written by David. David says, I will give thanks to You, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works, and my soul knows it very well. Did you hear David say it? What, what you and I and every other human being are supposed to intuit. We have been made. We have been made, which implies what? Someone tell me. What does it imply to be made? There was a maker. His name is Yahweh. David says, I have, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, I know it. And here's the deal. Every human being who's ever walked the earth, even the, the so-called atheists, they know it. They know it. They know it. It's the next verse I want to share with you that I sh have shared with you many, many times. Romans 1, 20-23. I'll just read it to you. You can listen. This is what every human being knows. Regardless of what comes out of their mouth. This is what's written on their heart. Their designer and builder and creator, he wrote this right across their heart. So I'm going to read it to you. Romans 1, 20, 20, uh, Romans 1, 20 23. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, God's eternal power, and God's divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that mankind is without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him. This, okay, I'm coming back to Psalm 29. What are you supposed to do when you see the created order? Glorify the One who created it. Glorify the Creator. This is, what, this is the word. Now, the NAS actually uses the word did not honor Him, but I looked up the Greek. The Greek word is actually most often um, translated glory. Okay, So it's probably more correct to say they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, man became a fool and exchanged... What? What did man exchange? The glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You know, I listen to some of these scientists and I read these guys and it's almost like they worship. They, they, they worship these little bugs and these little lizards and these little reptiles and the birds. And they really, it's like that's what they're worshiping. Not, not the one who spoke them into existence, but the creatures themselves. So in response to the pervasive glory of God that's evident in the created order, what did mankind do from Romans chapter 1? What did mankind do? They did not glorify God and they exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. That's why Psalm 29 matters. Right? That's why it matters. That's why it matters. It matters maybe more today than it's ever mattered. You're supposed to read the glory of God off the created order. You're not supposed to be indoctrinated by academia and the media. You're supposed to understand that you've been made. You're supposed to understand who made you and why. We're supposed to understand, beloved. So, what is the chief end of man? What does the catechism say? What is the chief end of man? 
Anybody remember? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. David, David watches a thunderstorm pass through Lebanon. <laughs> he understands. He understands. He understands His purpose. That's why I'm here, to glorify this glorious God. Right? So, famous, famous, famous book written by Jonathan Edwards, um, 18th century American theologian. The end for which God created the world. It's brilliant. It's not easy to read, but it's brilliant. I commend it to you if you have an appetite for that. Short answer. The end for which God created the world. You already know this if you've been around the church very long. To display His glory to His intelligent creatures and to communicate His glory to the redeemed. That's why everything exists. Back to the microscopic creature under the the rock in the deepest part of the ocean to the asteroid on the far side of the cosmos. Everything exists that God may display His glory to His creatures and that God may communicate that glory to the redeemed. This is, big. This is beautiful stuff, beloved. This is Psalm, in my view, Psalm 29. So let me pause and define the word glory for you. Actually, it's impossible to, to define the glory of God. You cannot define that which is infinite. I cannot define the glory of God, but I can define the word glory as it, as it applies to God. So this is what I want to do. I asked Karen for her children's material because this is what we teach to our children about the glory of God. It's brilliant stuff. It's called the ABCs of God. It's from, oh, guess who? John Piper's church in the States. Here's a definition of God's glory. God's glory is the beauty of His manifold perfections. The beauty of His manifold perfections, including His bright and awesome radiance and the infinite moral excellence of His character. God's glory signifies His infinite greatness and worth. I think that's a beautiful definition. If you want it, email me. I will send it to you. And then let me read from the children's material. Uh, regarding God's glory evident when you walk out that door. Okay? I love this. This is beautiful. When you see a beautiful fish, God is showing you a little bit of His glory. When you pick up and feel a rock, God is showing you a little bit of His glory. When you bite into an apple and taste it, God is showing you a little bit of His glory. Flowers, waves, mountains, volcanoes, waterfalls, birds, giraffes, elephants, trees, bananas, pumpkins, clouds, lightning, snow, dandelions, etc., 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 all show us a little bit of God's greatness and worth. David is right. Psalm 29, everything says glory. Psalm 29, 9, everything says glory. I tell you all the time, no man will stand before God on the last day and have any excuse. There is no excuse. Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. There is no excuse. It's not only written on your heart that Yahweh made you, it's written, you know, He has signed everything. His fingerprint is evident in the created order. There is no excuse. Everything says glory. So I'm going to stop and ask you 
Do you allow the glory of God in the created order to delight your soul? Or do you just, you know, you're too busy, right? We're just so busy. I'm, I'm too busy to stop and smell the roses is the cliche, right? And worship at the fact that this, look at this flower. I mean, Flowers, it's one of the things that, that blow me away. You, you, I don't know about you. You see these beautiful flowers, right? I mean, you just go, come on. <laughs> That's art. That's art. An artist, a great artist did that. Piper says, something is deeply and profoundly wrong within our hearts and our minds and our souls if we are unamazed. I know we're all guilty, but you should not go through one day and be unamazed. It's what Psalm 29 is about. Unamazed at what C.S. Lewis calls the divine, the mysterious, the magical, the terrifying, the ecstatic existence of all things. (laughs) I love that. So, I'm about to get into the text. It's a short psalm. One more comment. How does a Bible believer answer the question that physicists and philosophers love to ask? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is the biblical answer? What what, would a Christian say? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because Yahweh. That's why. Because Yahweh. Because a, a fountain... A, a, a fountain bursts forth. It's like God, you know, Edwards talks about God being like a fountain. And he's so full, he bursts forth. His genius and his power and his glory, it bursts forth. And he wants his creatures to see how glorious he is, that they'll be filled up with worship. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because Yahweh. Verse 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O souls of the mighty, pardon me, sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The old King James says, and I think actually the new King James says, give to the Lord. Well, I don't like that translation because it implies that we can give something to God. We can't give anything to God. You understand that, right? You understand we can't give anything to God. Now, we can ascribe to God glory. We can't give Him glory. He already is infinitely glorious. We don't give Him anything. I want us to make sure we understand that. We can ascribe glory to God, but we do not give glory to God. We talked about it a few weeks ago, Acts 17, 28. In God we live and move and have our being. Every nanosecond, God is holding us and upholding us. We can't give Him anything. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. Listen to this short paragraph. Lewis writes, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to God's service, you could give Him, you could not give Him anything that was not, in a sense, already His. You understand what I'm saying, right? And listen to Lewis's excellent illustration. It's like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me six pence to buy you a birthday present. 
It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the Father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. I've always loved... I never read that sentence that it doesn't make me laugh. We can't give God anything. It's all His. It's all His. But we can ascribe glory to God. We can ascribe glory to God. David is watching a thunderstorm pass through Lebanon. And he sees his Creator's glory, his power, and his strength. And what is David's inclination? What is the last phrase there in verse 2? What is the last phrase? Worship. The man who is the thinking man who is seeing correctly, there's only one thing left for us to do, and that's worship. That is to worship the Lord. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase on verses 1 and 2 is very colorful. Let me read it to you. Bravo, God! Bravo! Let all angels shout encore! In awe before the glory! In awe before God's visible power! Stand at attention! Dress your best to His honor! Now, a major thunderstorm is an incredible display of power, but we understand it's minuscule compared to the power that's evident in the cosmos in general. I mean, even as compared to our sun. The power of a thunderstorm is not that great as compared to the power of the sun or or, or compared to the power of the largest star that's known to man. Or or compared to all the power that that is unquantifiable in, in the total cosmos. But David sees this this small representation of the power of God and what does he do? He worships. He worships. Everything says glory. Everything says glory. I couldn't help but think a couple of weeks ago we we preached Psalm 97. Let me just read verses 3-5 through to you again about the power of God. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. My point here is this. David is watching a thunderstorm. And at least in his heart and mind and soul, he is prostrate before His Maker. He recognizes glory. I'll just stop and ask you again. Are you recognizing the glory of God? Not only in the fearfully and wonderfully made aspect of your own person, but in the created order. I just want to drop in an aside here. You know, when you uh, read Hebrews 11, Verse 3, God brings up creation. And you say, well, well, why is the creation mentioned in the faith chapter? Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter. Why is, why is creation mentioned there? Well, there could be obviously very many reasons that God has done that. But I think one of them is to encourage you. Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter. Can I really believe God and, and radically obey God? Can I really do it? Yes! He's the Creator! He's the one who speaks 400 plus billion galaxies into existence. Of course you can. It's why it's mentioned, I believe, in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Okay, verse 3 through 9. 
I've already read them. I won't read them. I read them to you a few moments ago. So you have heard them read and you can follow along as I just summarize through these verses. David is watching a thunderstorm pass through Lebanon and he is ascribing glory to his God. Verse 3, The God of glory thunders. And again, David has this visceral response to worship. Verse 4, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Verse 5, The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. God effortlessly shatters the mighty cedars of Lebanon. Verse 6, God makes the imposing mountains of Lebanon shake like a newborn calf. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord hews out. It means to fashion or, or it flashes forth flames of fire. He's talking about lightning here. I looked it up. The average lightning bolt striking the ground contains roughly one billion joules of energy. Does that mean anything to anybody? It sounds like a lot though. <laughs> Jewels is simply a unit of work. But again, I want to make the point. Lightning is a minuscule, just a minuscule evidence of the power of God. As is what is evidenced in the complete created order. Verse 8, again, the earth trembles at the thunderous power of God. Yeah, we're back to Psalm 97.4. God's lightnings light up the world and the whole earth sees and trembles. Verse 9, the thunderous storm causes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. Simply, it causes the deer to go into labor and the fierce lightning and wind and rain strips the trees of foliage. And this last phrase here in verse 9, it's the title of the sermon. I've already said it to you multiple times. Everything says glory Everything in the created order says glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory from the microscopic creature. I'm going to say it again. Under the rock in the deepest part of the ocean to the asteroid on the farthest side of the cosmos. It's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, C.S. Lewis, the divine, mysterious, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence of everything. I know that most of us live our daily lives and we never think this deep. God intends for us to think this deep. God does not intend for His people to be unamazed. Not only what He's done out there, but what He's done in here. If you're born again, if you know Jesus Christ, do not... I'm going to challenge you as God has challenged me <laughs> this last week. Do not go one day and be unamazed that you have been brought into relationship with the living God. Beloved, you may have lots of problems. We all have problems, but I want to tell you something. If you are in relationship with Jesus Christ... I'm not going to discount the problems, but what I'm saying is put it in perspective. You are in relationship with the God who speaks galaxies into existence. Don't go one day and be unamazed. That's my challenge for you as God 
has challenged me. Remember, you remember Job. Job was whining. Uh, you say, well, he had cause. But Job was beginning to question the wisdom and providence of God. Anybody remember what happened? God comes to Job. And let me just point this out. Does God answer any of Job's questions? Does God even address Job's suffering? Does God even speak to the trial that Job is in? God never even speaks of it. But Job is questioning the wisdom of God. God shows up, Job 38, 1-4. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and He said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I'll ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. And God asks Job 70 questions about the created order. I'm going to give you a handful of examples. God says, and I'm not going to give you the, the verses if you want them, uh, email me and I'll, and I'll send them to you. God says, who placed boundaries on the sea, Job? Who causes the dawn to know its place, Job? Who makes the seed of grass to sprout, Job? Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Job, can you send forth lightnings? Job, do you give the horse its might? Job, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Job, tell me if you know these things. Some of you sometimes think you know better than God. I think we're all guilty of that. We think we know better. Well, God, why aren't you doing this? This would be so much better. <laughs> Just go read Job 38, chapter 38 to chapter 42. Next time you think you want to question God. Next time you think you know better than God. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Job gets zero right answers. <laughs> and Job ends up prostrate on his face, worshiping God. Everything says glory, and the thinking man worships. The thinking man worships. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord sat as king at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Yahweh sat as king at the flood. This is a clear reference to the Noah flood. It's a clear reference to the righteous judgment of mankind as God drowned the world apart from Noah and his family. It's a clear reference to the righteous judgment of God. Also, verse 10, Yahweh sits as King forever. A clear reference to the fact that He is the eternal God, the everlasting God, the Alpha and the Omega God. Verse 11, how can you not love this? It's one reason God mentions creation in the faith chapter, as I said to you earlier. God strengthens us. God is, God is the God of strength. The Lord will give strength to His people. Can you live, Hebrews 11? Yes, you can every day. You have no excuse if you don't live Hebrews 11. In the morning when you get up, it's by your own choice. God says, I strengthen my people. I strengthen my people. It's a beautiful thing. 
20th century minister Oswald Chambers says it like this. I've always loved this quote. When obedience is in the ascendant, God will tax the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist you with His almighty power. I love that. I love that. Verse 11, Yahweh will bless His people. Who can stop Him? Who can stop God from blessing His people? Someone tell me, who can stop El Shaddai, the Almighty God? Who can stop El Shaddai from blessing His people? It's impossible. He's an invincible promise keeper. You say, Jim, I don't feel blessed. Well, I would ask you two things. I would say, do you know Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, you are blessed! If the answer is no, you need to repent and believe. It's, life is pretty simple. <laughs> the essentials of life, of this life, are very simple. Do you know Jesus Christ? Then you are blessed among men if you know Him. If you don't know Him, oh, guess what? This is the day of grace. This is the day of mercy. Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty and drink. So, Psalm 29, very simple. David exalts and rejoices and he worships as he watches the created order. American preacher John Piper, short quote, and I'm just about done. There's an immense loss when we get used to the redness of the rising sun and the roundness of the moon and the whiteness of snow and the wetness of rain. The blueness of the sky, the buzzing of bumblebees, the stitching of crickets, the invisible invisibility of the wind, the unconscious constancy of heart and diaphragm, the weirdness of noses, the number of the grains of sand on a thousand beaches, the never-ceasing crash, 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 crash of countless waves, and the ten million kingly clad flowers flourishing in mountain valleys. Shame on us if we go through one day and not be amazed. Shame on us. That's what Piper's talking about. Ultimately, Piper's talking about the glory of God evident in the created order. He's talking about the worship that should flow as we observe that glory. That's what he's talking about. So yeah, I think I may have a title for the second book. Glory Despised. Glory Forsaken. It might be a perfect title. In light of the thinking of much of humanity in these last days. Isaiah 6.3 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Psalm 19.1 The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Psalm 139.14 For we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that mankind is without excuse. David is right. And I want to exhort you tonight. Everything says glory. Everything says glory. Will you be like David? Will you, will you just marvel at the common everyday aspect of the created order? 
the beautiful symmetry and power and genius and complexity of, of the environment? Will, will, will you allow it to cause you to worship God? To delight in God? You know, when you wake up in the morning, oh, and your mind is working. Oh, and you're having ideas. And oh, you love your spouse or your, your, your friends or your, your children. And you, you have that emotion, that powerful emotion of love. Or, oh, you, you can dream and, and plan and hope and think deep thoughts. And oh, you can know the living God. Oh! Beloved, we're not supposed to be unamazed. <laughs> if we're God's people, we're not supposed to be unamazed. We're supposed to be perpetually amazed. And I know we have to cultivate that. I understand. But if you're in this, you will be cultivating amazement. Constant amazement. Even a simple psalm like, a, a simple psalm like Psalm 29 will take you over the edge. <laughs> I've been over the edge this week. I've just been thinking about thunderstorms. I have been amazed. This awesome God loves me. We are going to...